The professor of theology Edward Sellner once wrote, We inherit from our ancestors gifts so often taken for granted. We are links between the ages, containing past and present expectations, sacred memories, and future promise. My guest today on the program got very familiar with those links between the ages that Selner mentioned, and in those links he found some pretty intense ancestral plot twists that changed, well, that pretty much changed everything. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Drifting away, couldn't find a place to stay. Walking in the footsteps of it is the music of my guest today on the program, Fantastic Negrito. Let me tell you a little bit about Fantastic Negrito. Now, Fantastic Negrito may have been born in Massachusetts, but he's a Bay Area guy through and through. The eighth of 15 kids, he moved to Oakland as a 12-year-old and immediately immersed himself in the sounds of the 510 and the 415. He was no stranger to punk rock clubs like Berkeley's Gilman or the underground hip-hop clubs of Oakland. Thing is, he liked it all. Metal, indie rock, soul, punk, and jazz. And the legend goes that he learned to play music by sneaking into the classrooms at Cal, even though he wasn't a student. So here's the thing. Fantastic Negrito's career has two distinctive arcs, so here comes the first one. Using his birth name of Xavier, in 1993, he signed a deal with Prince's former manager's Lexington House Records, who, by the way, had a distribution deal with Interscope. Three years later, he put out his debut album simply titled Xavier. A horrifying car crash in 1999 nearly killed him. But after waking up from a three-week coma, he started to see his career in a totally different way. That new angle marinated for a while, but it wouldn't take hold until 2014, which was seven years after a self-imposed exile of not making music anymore. In his 40s, he emerged as Fantastic Negrito, a persona that made what he called Black Roots music for everyone. And, as it turns out, everyone was into it. What do I mean by that? Well, put it this way. Fantastic Negrito pulled off an improbable hat trick, winning the Grammy for Best Contemporary Blues Album in 2016 for The Last Days of Oakland. Then he repeated that feat for 2019's Please Don't Be Dead, and he did it again for 2020's Have You Lost Your Mind. His new album, Grandfather Courage, is the acoustic reimagining of his 2022 effort, 
White Jesus, Black Problems, and it's nothing short of brilliant. It's indie rock soul. It's lo-fi blues. It's big. It's grand. It's ambitious. And it's one of the richer musical experiences you'll have all year. As for the ancestry element to the story of Fantastic Negrito that I alluded to earlier, well, let's have him tell it, because it's his story, and it's filled with plot twists that have found him reverse engineering and recalculating who he is and where he came from and what it all means. So here you go, me and Fantastic Negrito having a conversation, right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Today I'm in Oakland. Holy cow. <laughs> That's quite a cultural shift. I mean, I probably my fourth time in a in a year going there. I mean, I, I I'm 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 gone quite a bit, so it's not a it's more it's pretty it's pretty normal at this point. Are you pretty good at acclimating to like that's a pretty dramatic shift of culture. Are you pretty good at, at adjusting? Oh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's like I said, for the past since 2015, I've been traveling. You know, most of my, I feel like yeah, most of my touring and playing and everything is always outside of the country. Last month it was, yeah, third within a month yeah, it was uh, South America. So it's it's always, yeah, I'm just I'm I'm gone. What does that do to your your um? your sort of notion of, of home, like what home is like, do you think home is on the road or like, how does that, oh, no, home, does that yeah. home is great for sure. You got to know what home is definitely, yeah. but you know that you're, you know, this is what you're doing. You're doing this work and it requires that you travel internationally. I don't think it does anything like, Oh, I don't, I know where home is. <laughs> as, soon as, as soon as I see that, that uh, Bay bridge at Lake Merritt, I, I know where home is. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. You and I are we're the same age, and we grew up here in the Bay Area. And you know, I was I remember like Journey had that song faithfully, which was about like you know how hard it was to be on the road because you miss so much of of what's at home, um, and you're in two places at once. So even though travel is such a necessary part of your job, do you do you find that you get homesick? No, I don't get homesick either. I'm I just take things as they are. Whatever we're doing, that's what we're doing. That's how I like to look at it. I don't ever try to feel like I missed something or I don't like to long for anything or whatever's happening. That's what we're doing. I, I like that. Um, I like that attitude. Journey was probably on the road, you know, a lot longer than I am. I go for a couple of weeks. I come back three weeks. I don't like to stay longer than three weeks. So it's three weeks everywhere. So, and that's that's doable. Yeah, that's like maximum. Is that is that by design or is that just the way the tours work out? Well, I think if you want to keep touring, a lot of people can't tour now because it's become so expensive. Um, you have to just adjust to the game, you know. And I was I was touring for eight weeks at a time before, but this doesn't make sense financially if you want to keep touring. So, to me, the 
tours that have been have made sense to me are two weeks, come back. Hit it and quit it. Two weeks, maximum three, but that makes sense. Because, yeah, I, I don't know if you, you know, if you read the headlines or whatever, but a lot of bands just um, stopped. I think one that was from Oakland, Tower of Power. Mm-hmm. You're like, hey, we can't tour. It's, it's expensive. It is expensive. Yeah, and they're sort of like a multi-man operation. Right. I can strip mine down. Like, I got mine down to me plus three. That's like a punk band. I I am a punk band. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, pretty much, in a way, aesthetically, yeah. It doesn't sound like it, but you know, to me, aesthetically, that's what I've always embraced. DIY, strip it down, econo, that whole thing. It may, mostly stop asking fucking permission. Yeah. I mean, sorry if you, I can't curse on you or whatever. No, you can. You can. <laughs> you just can. stop asking permission. I mean, who gives? I mean, this whole notion that there's this machine that, you know, it's keeping you out and it's keeping you down. And I've always never uh, believed in that, you know, and I, I get that from growing up in my era and uh, in the Bay Area and even at people. I mean, they, I think they wondered what the hell I was doing in 2014, 2013. They'd see me playing out on the streets and playing in front of Colonial Donuts or playing on wherever the hell I wanted to play. And I think that aesthetic was so punk. I, I did not care. I was not going to listen to what anyone was going to say about, well, you can't really do this. or The kind of music you're doing is not going to work. Or Mostly I heard, man, you know, you're too old. You're, you're in your 40s at the time. <laughs> Man, are you crazy? You're trying to start a music career? Probably wasn't trying to start a music career. I was just playing because I loved it and it felt great. And I felt like the way to um, amplify it was to get out there and don't take no for an answer. I mean, yeah, I love that. That's me. And I got it. I'm sure a lot of it's from, you know, growing up in the Bay in the 80s and 90s. It's just I got there in my 40s where I stopped asking permission and I stopped caring about what people think. It took me a long time to get there. Did you get there? It sounds like you got there earlier than I did. I mean, I don't, I, I have a tendency to glorify myself sometimes. So let me be careful. I, I don't want to, I, you know, it's a struggle always. You know, you, you're, you know, I'm there and, and then I'm not, and, but I'm there. Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, that's a tough one. I, I don't want to sound like the hero. So I want to say that in my 40s, there was an awakening for sure. Like, wow. I remember feeling like this when my 20s, I kept wanting to break into the music business and I'd get record deals and I couldn't and I was always too weird for people. And then in my 40s, I, I stopped wanting it. I think that's the thing. I stopped wanting it. I didn't care. I just thought that it was good to play at the bar station. I felt like that was a fine gig. And I think, and I wasn't going to ask someone permission. I think that um, the, the, the enlightenment and the power came in my 40s, but that dude was always there too. I mean, even in my 20s and he was there, but he just wasn't confident. I, I think I wanted to come to the party, you know, the party. Yeah, <laughs> I wanted to get, I was always, you know, staring into the window. And yeah, in your 40s, I stopped staring into the window. I stopped asking to get in. Can I get into the party? No. I am the party. And that's pretty liberating, right? Then all the pressure's off. It's so, it's liberating and it's powerful. 
I'm not asking you. You know, I don't need your permission. That's, as an artist, that's, how do you think we got the music of jazz? How do you think we got the music of blues? How do you think we got the music of funk, soul, house, punk, hip hop, rap? I mean, these were communities that were not asking you a permission. And I love that. And I embrace it every day. I think I detest this idea that, you know, everything has to sound the same and look the same and be the same and make people comfortable. I mean, artists, you know, I don't think we're supposed to make people comfortable. We wanted to make people comfortable, you know, go work at um, a coffee shop or a restaurant. Right. Well, comfortable, but not, I don't believe artists do it, not artists that I gravitate towards. When people started to be attracted to what you were doing after you decided that you're like, whatever, this is how it's going to be. Were you surprised that 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 attitude had caused such a huge shift in terms of how people responded to you? I was surprised. I mean, I, I never think it's good enough. Maybe that's why. I, didn't. I remember even back to my first demo that got me a record deal back when I was a kid. I never thought it was good enough. I don't think, I think I tend to feel that way. It's never good enough. I'm not ready. I, I don't know. So I, I think I was surprised. I'm, it's surprising, yeah. I mean, I don't think I go down easy to people. I don't think I do something that's specific. And that can be disappointing to people. So even Tiny Desk, all that was surprising. Like, wow, really? Okay. I'm crazy over here. You know, all right. <laughs> sure. How did you handle disappointment? Because anybody would have would have understood like you know the deals that you that could have happened in your twenties and, and as a young man. And then you're like, they didn't happen. They didn't come, you know, through the way you wanted to do or hope they would have come come through. But I mean, how did you how did you shoulder disappointment and how do, and how do you sort of contextualize that now? Oh, I'm sure I took it out on whoever was around me. I don't, I'm sure, you know, that's what, um, that's what we do, I guess. But, um, I think I just, you know, survivor, I'm the eighth of 14 kids that really turns you into kind of survivor mentality. And all right, that obstacle now becomes my fuel, but I'm sure you know, you take it out on people. Yeah. Yeah. Which we do as young men, I think sometimes. Oh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, growing up in the Bay area, especially you, know, you and I have the same, you know, the same sort of um, landmarks and, and cultural awarenesses that having gone through it in the eighties did um, for me, like, you know, mid eighties, late eighties, I'm listening to digital underground and I'm listening to operation Ivy. I liked punk and I liked hip hop and I liked everything that was happening. Did, did punk rock, land for you was that something that you were attracted to absolutely absolutely man i got it immediately you know i think oh wow you're giving you're giving uh this machine the middle finger that's you know i like that you know i, I was felt like always an outcast an outsider a weirdo a freak i gravitated towards those kids and um i think i still do actually and uh that music resonated with me did you ever go to gilman or anything like that of course <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I probably gilman, saw you there um um what's the other one uh yeah there wasn't many of us there wasn't many black people so yeah it was um when i, I you know i'd peek in and check out man let's see what these white boys are doing you know <laughs> that that was the uh 
I said, I remember thinking that. And then, you know, not only that, but then remember the Berkeley Square and uh, music was just everywhere. It was so many like small venues everywhere. You could hear music coming out of every door, it felt like in the Bay Area. I saw Fishbone at the Berkeley Square and it blew my mind. Yeah, it's like, how did they all get in there? I, I think I missed that, but I've seen them, but not there. But yeah, it was, it was just, it was, it was, it was, it was just in the streets, man. It was in the air. Yeah, you're I right. Bands even at People's Park, just everywhere. Oh yeah, they used to, they used to do little like sets there. You're right. Yeah. Park, there was the stuff, it was something called the Stone or something like that. Yeah. Even the Ashkenaz, you know, everywhere. Yeah. I mean, it was so much live music back then. It was unbelievable, man. Yeah. And there, it seemed to me like there were so many healthy pockets of like, there was a metal pocket, there was a hip hop pocket, there was punk rock. Right. Absolutely. Kids used to battle on the streets on Telegraph MCs, you know? It seems to me like maybe this is like the old man in me saying like that it's not like that anymore, but like it really doesn't feel like it is. It does feel uh, like like it's sort of been washed away a little bit. Maybe that's not true. Maybe I'm just not I'm not in touch with it. Well, I think that um, it has in a way because, you know, you have the Internet and we have these screens and that changed everything. So I don't know if it is true. People don't do that now because you can do it and go viral on YouTube, so they they do it there. What was your take on on Fishbone when you saw them play? I mean, saw that home, saw that home. I mean, that was uh, you knew that it was okay. You felt different, and you know, if you're hanging in West Oakland, you I'm like, wow, I'm different a little bit here. And then you see other artists that are different too, and you can relate. Yeah, I think it might be the, the greatest live band I've ever seen. They they can put it on you, man. They, uh, they still can, man. I just, um, I mean, Angelo's such a great singer. Said, I don't know if people, you know, realize what an amazing voice this guy has. He, um, I did a show with him, and um, I think it's Carl Denson's Tiny Universe and yeah. Parliament Funkadelic in Las Vegas. It was cool. It was an interesting uh, set. Everybody was doing something real different. I mean, of course, I do something that is strange to people. And then Fishbone's different. And Carl Denson, you know, it's uh, not as different. It's kind of based off uh, a genre of music, in a sense. But um, then Parliament Funked Out. So it seemed like it was something there for everyone. Very uncomfortable. Fishbone can make you really uncomfortable. Then Carl Denson makes you feel comfortable in the Parliament Funkadelic, where you grew up on them. So that's how that's how the show went. Yeah, yeah. Fishbone are kind of cha- they're challenging in a sense that they're very. Uh, I just love what they do. I'm not even sure how to explain it. I just think they're musical, and I think that's enough. Yeah, yeah. I saw Angelo at the Market Hall. And and um, he was a couple of years ago. He was with this really hot girl, and I wanted to I wanted to say hi to him. And he looked like such a quiet, mellow guy. But on stage, he's anything but. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's he's a very dynamic, charismatic, interesting guy. Yeah, and it makes me think a lot about persona, like how when you get on stage and you and you are fantastic, Negrito, and you are the character. When you when you come off the stage, do you 
kind of turn back into yourself? Like, how do you Absolutely. separate that? You don't want to be that guy on stage. That's insane, man. That's that's a death sentence. You don't want to be that. I don't want to be the guy on stage to, unless I'm on stage. You're performing, you know. You're not, you can't get off stage and then still be performing for your friends. That's annoying. Yeah, you'd burn out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people have done it. There's not a great track record for people who have done that. They can't kind of put it, put it, put the persona away. What's your relationship to the Bay Area now? Like, do you like you sound like you have as much affection for it as you always did? Yeah, I mean, it is home. Like we talk about home. This is home. It's the, mo- the place that is most familiar to me of any place in my life, and it's definitely gone gone through changes. I mean, I think, um, you know, but I think every city does. You don't see the thing I trip out of is trip office. You just don't see people out. Some of the places that used to be really congested, but you just don't see people out. And I was in uh, Argentina and Chile and Brazil, and people are out, and the cafes are filled, and it's, it's so different. Like I don't, I don't know why people aren't out. And maybe I'm just going to the uh, to the wrong places. <laughs> but I think it's definitely shifted. It's changed. There's a new group of people that have come here, and um, you know, for better or worse. Some things are good. Uh oh, it's my dog. Let me step out of here. Some things are, are good, better. Some things are worse. I mean, I think it, um, you know, I do miss, like, I mean, even in the last eight years when I was doing the Grito on the streets, I felt like there was something in the air there. There was people were out, musicians were playing on the streets. It felt like there was something happening. And I don't know if I've just be, gotten older or if there's anything happening, maybe there is something happening. It's just not that anymore. Well, if I was going to go buy music, I'd go to Amoeba and get a handful of records and then you'd have to get online and the line would stretch all the way to the back of the store. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, now it's like that's, you know, Telegraph Avenue, that street right there is just pretty empty, which just surprises me. Yeah, I mean, a lot of streets are empty and that I think people, you know, the Internet changed that people can just it's very they can become they're very entertained at home and uh, everything has a lot of views and i think that's what people are they may be at home i don't know someone must have the answer to this but it's just interesting as i said i I really noticed in you know south america or even japan which i was in september and it was full man and people are out and people are doing stuff i i don't know man how are, how are the nights in South America? I imagine like night gets gets going around 10 or 11. Yeah, people are just out. You see, it gets going late and you see grandparents and you see little kids. People are out enjoying food and talking to each other and drinking coffee. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, that's community to me. It's like yeah, in person. World, yeah. yeah. I think people yeah. are not as wealthy, but are wealthy in other ways. Not as wealthy financially, but boy, they're just, it was like that everywhere, Europe, all the, everywhere we go, it just feels like that. Are you, are you a nocturnal guy? Like, do you, do you like the night? I do like the night. I do like it very much. Um, but, you know, as I'm getting older, I don't, I don't know. I don't like driving at night. I can't really see. I don't like driving anymore as much. Yeah, I just Uber, man. I just get rides. I don't, I don't, I don't like to drive. It just, 
He used to drive everywhere, man. Drive to Texas, come without sleeping, like just weird. Stuff. I think I burned myself out with it, but I'm not a fan of driving anymore. And in the rain, I really just don't drive. I don't want to. It's not comfortable. I was thinking a lot about Prince and about Bowie because I I put Prince and Bowie in the same category in the sense that oh, they were totally in control of that of the persona. And I love how like the Prince persona changed and the Bowie persona changed. Is do you think about the changes to the Fantastic Negrito persona? Like, are there progressions that you're noticing? I think there definitely is, um, especially. His last few records, yeah, I think there is. I think, um, and those are two of my greatest teachers in a sense, those two. I think so, definitely. Uh, I may be so close to it, but it feels like it. I mean, um, you know, songs, you know, especially off the new album, like, you know, stuff like Venomous Dogma. And yet, I don't know, I'm getting out. I feel like, oh, wow, I'm getting out there a little bit. Oh, this is, like, <laughs> when I'm surprised, I'm like, oh, shit. That's, I think that's what, art is in a, in a sense and then you know i just did the stripped down thing and i'm like wow that's really different you know no electronic you know instruments and uh upright bass and yeah but you know white jesus black problems was a trip to make it was it was yeah i definitely felt that the shift doing a shift that i think like from the last days of oakland going to please don't be dead i remember i remember people telling me like oh my god you you're gonna blow it. Like you you've got this thing, you've got this sound, you you just won a Grammy and now you're gonna are you making a rock record? I remember an engineer said that to me and I was like, I, I don't know. And um I think it's okay. I mean if I was a 20-year-old rapper, I'd have to keep doing the same beats and but there's something liberating about being a middle-aged guy doing this where yeah, you can just keep shifting and uh, keep challenging yourself. I think it's healthy. And you're not pigeonholed. You're not expected to make, you know, because of the way of the nature of the persona, you know, you can do, there's a, an elasticity to the persona where it can, you can make a ska record if you wanted to. Yeah. It can make, you can do whatever you want. That's what's the beautiful, um, the beautiful thing about like being your own label and, you know, I'm a I'm a marketing nightmare to the machine. I'm sure the machine hates me, but, um, you know, as a human being, it's extremely liberating. It's it's kind of more about hey, you know, you want to do great things rather than wow, how many how many followers are we gonna have here? I mean, it doesn't. You don't have to worry about that at, at 55. Yeah, because I would imagine if you did have to worry about that, it's it's like a thankless task. You can never win that game. Well, the thing is, you won't you won't make music. You know, you'll make something else. I think you know there's a freedom. You know, you it, it, you got to know who you want to be. You know, if you want to be Madonna or David Byrne. You know, <laughs> dating myself by you. But yeah, I I think that's what it is. You know, you want to be popular or you want to be, uh, you know, create music that means something to you. And I think that's what is important. I think like fame has become this cancer now. It's like, it's like a disease. Like people, they, they there's a generation of pe people that are gonna grow up and feel depressed because they're not famous. It's become this, this, this uh, what do you call it? Like a plague, a modern plague, you know, fame. Yeah. Fame. The modern plague, yeah. I, I must be famous. 
very strange. It's a weird thing to chase. It's a dangerous thing to chase. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Because you can never, you can never, you'll never be satisfied and you'll never be famous enough. And, you know, it just doesn't doesn't work that way. It's just, it's pretty sick. You want to be great. That's great. That's amazing. You want to be incredible, but wanting to be famous is weird. Like when I look at someone like Prince or Bowie, they, they, they had their failures, right? They had their, their artistic periods that were certainly artistic, but maybe not commercially viable. And they didn't seem to care. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they did or didn't, but um, I mean, I think you could tell when they didn't, when you listen to those artists, you could tell when they were like, Hey, you know, I'm where I want to be. You can tell I mean, we all run out of gas. It's uh, I mean, greatness is greatness. I don't, I don't know. Well, I would imagine if you made the same record five or six times, you would run out of gas. Well, if you're making the same record five and six times, you're not chasing greatness. You're chasing something else. The great thing about those guys we mentioned is they didn't make the same records. Dirty Mind has nothing to do with Love Sexy or Sign of the Times. Like, nothing. (laughs) Completely different. No way. Yeah, and it's like, uh, you know, that inspires me. We're all different, but that inspires me. Y'all better wake up, laugh and you don't take off. Demons of the monsters break up. Conspiracy lies, the laziest minds can lose their time. Preacher, spin dark rhymes to speak us. Candy for lies and tweak us. Standing in line for edge on speakers, no hustle.
sit down to write or when you're creating those old those reflexes i imagine the tendency is to to make a right turn to a familiar place but are you're probably more interested in the left turn to somewhere unfamiliar well the beautiful thing is that i never sit down and write i think it just happens and i just kind of live like that i let it just oh this is happening uh oh what do i have here do i have a a spoon do i have a guitar do i have a an iphone like what's it just happens and i i you know, if I ever have to try to do it or sit down to write, then I would stop doing it. You know, there's a soundtrack in my head, for better or for worse. And it just plays and it plays and there's sound. And I think that's cool. And I think when I get into the production of it, there's a bit of an intention. Whoa. But, um, yeah, writing, oh man, I, you just let that happen. It's a beautiful thing. It's just, it's happening. You know, stay out of the way. That was interesting on, on, um, on White Jesus, Black Problems. I just, I remember feeling that way. I, I met Quincy Jones once and he told me that as we were, had a, a nice conversation. But I felt like I, the songs were just writing themselves and I was just staying out of the way. And um, I was quite surprised at that album, actually myself. I'd, I think, oh wow, this is different. Okay, you know, they, it was just different. And um, our songs like "Highest Bitter," they go low. And Virginia Soil, that was one that really mm. surprised me. Just okay, this okay, all right, all right, let's go. <laughs> and then yeah, and again, Venomous Dogma, which was really different. But I figure like that's what it is. That's what we're doing because that's, that's what it is. I love hearing that artistically you feel surprised by by what shows up. And because it means that it really, it almost feels like you're like a conduit. You're sort of like just channeling yeah. this energy. I mean, that's what, that's what I think that's where it should be, I think. Uh, for me, not for everyone, but for me. You got to tell a story. It's about storytelling, you know, tell the story. Tell the story, right. And um, with my, you know, discovering the story of White Jesus Black Problems, sitting there online and reading all this information about, you know, my seventh generation grandmother. Oh, wow, she's white. What? Oh, she's a Scottish indentured servant. Oh, what? She, she hooked up with an uh, enslaved dude? My grandfather, I mean, that was, that's still mind-blowing to me. I'm still processing that I'm the seventh generation of a forbidden union of a white woman and a black man on a tobacco plantation in Virginia in the 1750s. I mean, when you got that, you just stay out of the way and you let it, you know, it, it, that's a gift. So when it came to, you know, that, that particular album, oh yeah, man, it was just, I just stayed out of the way. Did that information kind of do your head in? Like when you first found out, were you like, what the hell? Well, it still is. That's, um, you know, I found out a lot through that. So, you know, my, my very long last name is completely made up and fabricated. My dad was um, running from something. You know, he had another family, never talked about. Um, you know, he was from the Bahamas. And now there's these people out there that are related to me that I never knew existed. So 
that was one side and the other side was the finding these um this incredible story and it, it was it's very you know i'm proud of that story i'm like wow wait a minute white scottish indentured servant black slave plantation decide to have a kid that's the most punk rock shit i've ever heard yeah yeah in the 1750s like what are you thinking you know and i thought wow this helped me understood myself and it helped me uh I get it. It was very emotional. I'm like, wow, that's who I am. That's why. That's why I'm, why am I so weird? Oh, yeah. Oh, this is what's in your DNA, brother. You know, this is who you are. Embrace it. And I felt, yeah, still, I wake up and go, wow. I go back, log on to Ancestry and read the story all over again. It's unbelievable. And I think it's the most American story I've ever Red. I mean, you know, yeah, we're all from these different situations, and but we're all coming from the same place. You know, I'm here. I am African and Native Indian, and 28% white. Who knew? You know, who knew? But that that's a beautiful thing, and uh, we're all connected in so many ways, in ways that we may have never imagined. And people have far greater obstacles uh, than, and survived than we could ever imagine too. So that, that story continues to teach me every day. You know, the, the story of that child, of that union, man, I'd love to know that story. Like how, how was life for that child? His name was George Gallimore and he was born. Here's the interesting thing. Number one, my seventh generation grandmother's name is Elizabeth Gallimore. So she they don't they they say this unnamed slave, which was terrible. And I call I I named my grandfather Grandfather Courage, which is the name of the record. So he was born, and it was immediately there was an immediately some kind of probate court case. That's the document that I found, and it said he's born bound apprentice, which I later discovered as he is is born a an indentured servant like the mother. I think. If I'm correct, and I think I'm correct, you're the status of the mother. Whatever she is, if the mother was a slave, you're a slave. So I think, um, you know, these arrogant, you know, white supremacist landowners never thought that a white woman would freely, freely choose, you know, to have a baby and a love interest, love partner as a, a black enslaved man, that they never, in their arrogance, could have never imagined that. So that's how six generations of free <clears throat> African-Americans ended up on my bloodline, free, because of this union. I think George had to do seven years of work, and then he was free, and that's he's my sixth grandfather. So um, it was very, very, very interesting. And you think there was these free Black people in Virginia during the time of slavery. I, I just never, and they lived and they were families. And I, I guess you had to have your papers, but if you had your papers, you were good. I mean, that's just, I never could have imagined anything like that. So just kind of, you know, there's a narrative like, you know, you're, you know, we're black and you're a slave and we're white people and we owned you. And I mean, it's just not true. 
you know, the, of, of course there that existed, but there's so many other truths. I think there was 50,000 free blacks in Virginia during the time of uh, slavery. And it's a narrative not really taught. I think it's interesting. Maybe people, they don't teach it because it's not, I don't know, people love the bad guy. There's gotta be a bad guy and we gotta have the victim and we set everybody up here and okay, go everybody. Are you in your places? <laughs> Action, <laughs> go. Yeah, okay, right. I'm the victim here and I, I can't do anything. And it's just absurd. But um, it's, it's educational and enlightening and, you know, I'm really, I'm enjoying the journey of it all. Did he live a long life? I don't know. I have some years of the birth, but I don't have the, um, you know, when they were deceased. Some of them I can find online. Some of them I can't, but I'd love to get on uh, Find Your Roots and have that, have, uh, what's the guy's name? Oh, that, yeah, I can't remember his yeah, name. Yeah, him, I'd have him help me. Yeah, I'll bet, I'll bet that'd be a really interesting story. I mean, I think the story is so interesting that I try to Google like this kind of, okay, uh, white women that were basically free that chose to have children with black enslaved men, man, bro. I can't find nothing. It's weird. Like, I can't find that. I mean, of course, white men fathered black children because, you know, you, you got more slaves that way. Oh, I got, but not the other way around. There's two things. Like one, it's really beautiful that that love, like the borderless boundaries of love. Like she fell in love, they fell in love, and like, and that's what happened. A, and the other beautiful thing is that she, the, like, the tremendous risk of of doing that didn't. Ooh. That's pretty. That's pretty punk rock. That's the most. Like I said, that's the most punk rock shit I've ever heard of. Like, I'm like, wow, this is it. it I, it's. Man, this little Scottish woman, like, good Lord, man. I mean, that's, but I think like, wow, this is who I am too. I'm like, this is, I get it, grandma. I get it. It's who I am and him. Let's not forget him, like uh, grandfather courage. I mean, dude, you know, you could be hung and tarred and feathered and whatever else they would do to people, you know? And, and I even have the, the name of the, uh, the person that owned the plantation and my grandfather and I and you know held the contract of indentured servitude on my grandmother's name was Henry Jones, a tobacco farmer in um what's the name of this county? Amelia County, Virginia. And I was playing in New York and I kind of told the story on stage and a guy claimed to be the descendant of Henry Jones. And it's just interesting, you know, how many this this information is probably not that hard to um, figure out, but um, yeah, I just took like the basis and the premise of it and made the album and the film, which was was easy to make. It was during the pandemic; musicians were not working, and uh, you know, if I ran into you, you were gonna be in my movie. Hey, you wanna you wanna <laughs> be in my movie? You know, <laughs> I think my accountant's in the movie. My neighbor. My neighbor was pretty sad because he had to be, he had to play the slave owner. Such a nice guy though. I'm like, come on, man. Oh, come on, you can do it. You know? <laughs> I had to talk him into being like this horrible, horrible, horrible person. <laughs> it was, it was great, but he, you know, he was like, all right, you know, 
I was like, you know what? It's a great story. It's a, it's a story of healing. It's, a, it's not a story of even blame. It's a story of self-determination. That's what I liked about their story is they did not ask permission. And I'm like, wow, that's familiar. Uh-huh. Didn't ask permission. We're about to do this shit with or without you. And that's, wow. That's who I want to be. Historically, do you know what what life was like for, you know, a black man in 1750 who was considered free? Like, what did a free life look like? Do you, do you know that? Well, you can read on the census cards, like, could you read? Can you write? Some of them said yes. Now, do you own property? Some of them said yes. You know, they had inherited property. You know, I don't know. I wasn't there. I'm sure it was no cakewalk, but. 50,000 is a big number. When I Googled it, that's a lot of people. It is. That are free, that are black in Virginia at that time. But boy, they had them. It's very, man, we, I mean, it would take people that were much smarter than me to really discuss the impact of this. But it's very um, powerful, liberating made me rethink a lot of things and you know, they were taught this narrative you know like oh you're black you were you know you're slaves and you're white you're, hey you own the slaves hey listen 99 percent of white people couldn't even afford to own the slaves. Mm. i mean you know we it, this thing could be really you know deconstructed and we can learn a lot of things off of it if we want to do you think it also kind of explains your openness to so many genres of music like as a young yes, man absolutely like i was a, you know i was considered a freak you know walking around in oakland a black kid and just something simple and pop like hey man i like the police i remember a bunch of kids laughing at me man you listening to that shit like you know i remember buying <laughs> you know what i mean buying fish bones tape hanging out with some kid and he was like listening to black flag and i was like oh that's cool and yeah man you get ostracized i mean that's serious it seems like nothing now but back then if you were 12 and 13 you're a little black kid that's that's it's not good i remember some i remember some dudes like motherfucker do you worship the devil or some shit <laughs> listening to that shit man i remember like you know it was, it was it was comical in a way now, but I was like terrified that people would know. I mean, I wasn't doing anything that, I mean, I bought U2's first record way back in there and it shit like that. But I still listened to everything that was grimy and black and, you know, edgy. I mean, I was still into that, you know, not, you know what I mean? Like un underground music in, in East Oakland and too short. I was listening. I loved all that shit. It wasn't. E40, which came a little bit later, but I love yeah. that. I mean, I love that shit. Yeah. And of course, Digital Underground went to school with them, but it wasn't it wasn't that I wasn't into that, but I just liked it all, which was very weird for people. <laughs> I mean, even a band like Bad Brains, I mean, those guys were pioneers. Ooh, Bad Brains. How do I forget them exactly? Which admittedly I, I discovered them a little bit later. But there was just so much good um Talking Heads even, I was like, wow, that's cool. Listen to all that shit, man, you know, anything great, I wanted to soak it up and 
Yeah, but I think it did come from like coming from people that were very different. It was in my DNA to gravitate towards everything. Yeah, and once you've found that information out, it, it kind of makes you reverse engineer and go back and go, oh. <laughs> yeah, once I'm telling you, when I found that story, it changed my life. I was like, I finally had closure. I mean, finding out my last name was not real. That was, I'm still processing that. And I haven't met the family yet, the, my, the real family that I came from. I mean, that, there's so much this. We're talking about my mother's side was revealing and so was my father's side. My father just made up everything, completely made up everything. And we never knew. I just, you know, and I, I have all these people I'm related to now and I'm just talking to them now and I haven't met them yet. I intend to meet them this year. It's, it's heavy duty, man. It's, I got a picture of a guy that was my grandfather and I framed it and it's on the wall. Well, that's not my grandfather. Mm. Very strange. I mean, what your dad did was also in many ways punk rock too. I mean, I know it probably was, you know, it was an interesting choice to make, but it was, it, it, there's something about it, which is kind of um, in nature, very punk rock. Well, I can tell you that when I discovered that, oh, that's what my dad did. The first thing that came to my mind, I'm sitting in a hotel in Atlanta was white Jesus, black problems. I remember thinking that's where it came. I'm like, wow. Uh oh, wow. This sounds interesting. Why white Jesus, black problems, meaning like, okay, my dad's born in 1905 and he's looking at the world. He's a different guy. He's pretty eccentric. He's out there and he's like, all right, it's 1905. I'm black and I'm very eccentric and different. I'm in, and I'm smart. I, I'm in trouble. As a matter of fact, that's a death sentence in Mississippi. So I think what he did is he just, re, he just abandoned his people, reinvented himself as someone else. And with this strange name and the strange background, which was all of course a lie, but it was again, a person not asking permission. I don't, need your permission. I don't need your help. I'm smart. I'm capable. And I, and, and I, I, I get it. And I think in a way it was powerful, disturbing and hurt a lot of people too. But I think my father was always never willing to be a victim. I think that's where I got that from. He, I remember my dad, we'd come home, we'd talk about, you know, it's, 80s, even 70s, man, you know, racism, you know, all this, you know, it's, it's hard out there, and you know, and the white man and racism, you know, back then it was, people really spoke about it um, eloquently and intelligently. I remember my dad used to say something to us. He'd say, let me ask you something. Do you think white people are special? <laughs> I never, never forgot that, you know, I just thought like, gee, I, maybe, I don't, no, I, I don't know. I, I don't think, he goes, no, they're not. And in fact, you can do anything that they can do. You apply yourself. You get your ass to work out there, man. These people, you said that was such a great message to hear, <laughs> you know, as, as a kid. Sorry, white people out there. <laughs> but no, I mean, it was, I think, it's like, we're not special. But I think young black people, and they need to hear that. And there's no, you know, they're not mythical creatures. And like we can in fact do everything and anything 
you know, that they can do. And we have, he would be like, yeah, there's obstacles. And I just remember his messaging was always like, that. yes, it's out there. Now go destroy it. Wow. Powerful. Like he did. He invented a last name. <laughs> be creative. You know, I love this idea of being, and you know what? I think it applies to uh, agriculture. I think it applies to education. It applies to finances. It applies to everything. Go be creative. I'll think this evil system, you know. The whole our concept of race is a construct. You know, go defeat it. I get it. I'm a fan of it. And from a creative writing standpoint, I mean, he could have gone with Smith, you know, and, and blend it <laughs> in. <laughs> but he, I mean, you know, when I, I, who could make up that last name? <laughs> I know. I mean, dude. That last name, and now, now that I know it, I what I do now faces every time they see my last name. All my life, I've been kind of old, cringy, a little bit embarrassed. But now I go, wow, they don't know what to think. You put that last name in front of anyone, anyone in the world, they don't know what to think. And I thought, wow, it took my whole life to figure out, you know, white Jesus, black problems. And the white Jesus part, you know, not meaning Jesus literally, but just this idea of, do you think white people are special? Now, this idea of like, oh, this uh, construct and, um, you know, this white supremacist thing and that that's pervasive. Well, yeah, I mean, how do you get around this thing? You, you can. You can. And you, oh, there goes my dog again. You can and you better. And um, I, I think it's all good stuff. And you don't have to do it by eat by, I don't know, what's the word? I mean, you may not, you don't even have to march down the street in matching jackets, mm -hmm. you know, with, with slogans. You can do it in other ways and we can all be beautiful together. And, you know, I don't think you can, screaming at people and blaming them, uh, you, even if you're right, you, you'll never get them to sit down at the table. Like making people who may even be the ones that are, Ooh, this is getting out there. You know, even listen, if I go, hey, man, let's take a word like white privilege. And I'm like, coming to you and I'm, it's heavy. And like, if I'm, if I'm blaming you for it, rather than discussing, you're not even willing to sit down and talk to me. If somebody's blaming me for some shit, I don't want to talk to them either. It's a bad place to start. Mm. And I'm sure people hate these words that are coming out of my mouth, but... I, they've helped me be independent and they've helped me as an artist and they helped me not ask permission and they've helped me with empowerment and yeah, I hope other people can feel that. Yeah. And it's a bad place to start because that's kind of where it ends. Right. So there is. Really yeah. Start, right? <laughs> yeah. That's what, you know, even when you're married, I don't know if you're married, you're like, you fucked up or something. You gotta, it's not, even if you fucked up, there's a, there's a way to sit down and tell me I fucked up rather than, you know, I'm a piece of shit and I'm nothing and I've, you know, I've, you know, all that stuff, you know, there's a better, then I'm, I'm defensive and I'm like, I'm out of here and I may have fucked up and I may have done horrible things, but we got to start off differently. Something like that, man, I wish I was more articulate. I'd probably be rich. <laughs> no, I think what you're saying is, is yeah, it's very, but it's a little bit, it's a little bit clumsy, but you know, yeah. 
And I don't think what I'm talking about makes very much money. I think on both sides of the spectrum, this game that we're playing is very profitable. <laughs> it's very profitable, man. It's like, oh, you over there, you're the, you're the boogeyman, you're the bad guy, and you over there, you're the, um, you're the victim over here, and like, we're going to help you, and we're going to get them, and hey, you over there, those people are just complaining, they suck. I mean, this is a business. I think, I think it is. That narrative sure is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a business. You know, Fox, MSNBC, it's both, it's, they're both businesses, you know. That's it's, right. That's right. But I don't know if people are ready to really fix things. I don't think so. One day they will be, but I, I don't think they are. The narrative is sexy. It's good. It's good to go like, hey, I can't do this because of you. Now let me sit down here and, you know, have my lemonade. <laughs> Rather than let me get to work. Getting to work is hard. Get to work on the bullshit. Oh, dude, yeah. That's it, hard. I mean, if I was an if I worked for MSNBC or Fox, I would I wouldn't last four hours because I would feel like what's the point of this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you and I both. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we know what the point is. The point is to continue the narrative. The narrative is profitable and it works. It sucks. You know, you don't get anywhere profoundly permanently. I don't know if that's in the long run, it's terrible, but it, it, you know, the short run, it's great. You get Trump, and ooh, everybody. I mean, you know, the media loved Donald Trump because it sold whatever, it sold whatever they were trying to sell. It made Fox, you know, and make MSNBC and CNN. It was like that was, they almost elected him as the president. That's right. Because it sold. It was, um, you know, it was confrontational and it was madness and it was ratings. And I don't know, we got to fall out of love with that. Look how dumb this politician sound compared to 20 years ago. You got these horrible people, you know, walking in the halls of Congress. I mean, we thought we thought that one guy wasn't very bright, uh, Dan Quayle. Oh he yeah, looks like, he looks like a genius now. <laughs> he does. He looks like a Rhodes Scholar compared to what we got now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone told me once. They said when you watch cable news, you're not watching the news. You're watching the news business. Yeah, you're watching. It's entertainment. It's entertainment. Remember the news? The news was boring. Remember the boring news? Nobody wanted to watch the news. That's what your dad watched. You know, you wanted to watch something fun, but now the news is fun and it's entertaining. Yeah, and it's good guy, bad guy. It's good versus yeah. evil, right? Mm -hmm. And it's it's a it really is a false narrative because it's such a limited false. scope. Well, it's not news. They should just call it something else. Entertainment networks. Yeah, and it's always like it's always like um, predictive. They're like, okay, this thing happened. What do you think is going to happen next? And it's like that's not really news to talk about what yeah. you think might happen next. Right, and then they have like a panel of people that come. <laughs> yeah, it's a production. Yeah, it's a production. Yeah, it's a production. When you when you met your father, like when you when your dad when you were born, your your dad was was older. Um, sixty three. Sixty three, and so did you? My find... mother was thirty. My mother was wow. thirty. My father, yeah, I know. Wow. Um. Yeah, I mean, did you find that you had like philosophical conversations with him when you were younger because he was an older guy? Yeah, definitely. He definitely prepared me for when he put me out on the streets at 12. 
I was definitely prepared for that because he had, you know, had so many philosophical um, and informative discussions with me when I was very young. So I was kind of able to hold my own as much as a 12-year-old could at that time. And when you landed in Oakland, were you kind of like, so you were ready? I was like, home, yeah. Yeah. This is great. Black people and weed. Music, <laughs> yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. That's what it felt like. I'm out. See y'all later. <laughs> See y'all in 10 years. Yeah. That's, did you have a, t a lot of support, too, from your siblings? Did you, did you feel supported in your artistic choices? No. I, I don't know. My, my siblings, we... There's 14 of us and, you know, we're, we're damaged. You know, I mean, you can't come from a dysfunctional household the way we did and not end up being pretty damaged. You know, with, you know, some of us get along, some of us don't. It's, just, it's not, it's not a pretty sight, but you know, you, your parents, all of our parents kind of traumatize us in different ways. And then we, ha you know, we have to recover. So I think yeah. we're all recovering. We're trying. We're trying. Long. Yeah, the, the recovery process can be long. Long, arduous. Yeah, but you work it out through art. Yeah, through art. You just can't pass along the bullshit. No, that's my, I spend my life trying not to just pass on the toxic things that I learned. My parents, I try to take the good things. And there were, all, there were good things in there it's a bold choice to be an artist and it, it seems like you, you do need support. It seems like it, it'd be helpful, but you also get it from your fellow artists. Yeah. I mean, you get it from the community that you build and embrace. I think that's, you know, I believe in the word people portfolio. Like you have a financial portfolio. Some people do, some people, <laughs> but there, I, I like the word people portfolio. Like who are my people? What do I got in here? Okay. They're like stocks. Okay. This stock has gone up. This stock is, this is a long-term stock. <laughs> this is a short-term stock. I kind of look at people that way. I, that may be disturbing to people, but I like to look at it that way. I, you know. Yeah. So I'm I'm guessing you've had a lot of the same close friends for a long time. Yeah, I have. I got some long-term friendships. Some of them are have done well. Some of them are hanging on by a thread, and it's just yeah, it's the the whole the whole spectrum of. Uh, being a human being. Yeah, man. Well, look, I uh, I really appreciate this conversation. Now you're heading to Japan tomorrow, but I, I really appreciate you taking the time and 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 having this chat with me. I, I said, didn't know you're like you're in Oakland. I'm like you're in Oakland. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, just two two Bay Area guys chopping it up. We're definitely two Bay Area guys. When 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 uh, hopefully I'll run into you. Come to we have the storefront market event at the. It's really cool. You should come. Where's that? Uh, well, at my record label at Storefront Records, which I've been trying to launch for a couple of years now. It's um so what I did is I just started doing an event. And I do it um about every quarter now. It's like live music, pet adoption, vendors. So yeah, just uh, you know, be in touch with my people. We'll we'll give you a shot. But it's a really great Oakland, old school Bay Area event, but kind of new people, but old school idea. And that'll be like in, in the spring? Next one will be on Earth Day. Oh, it's on the 20th or 21st. Something like that, yeah. I will, uh, I'll come say hey, man. Yeah, you'll like it. It's a, it's a great vibe.
I'm psyched. I'm psyched. Hey, I'm glad we met. That was this is fun. Absolutely. Take care. There you go. A fantastic series of stories from a fantastic guy appropriately named Fantastic Negrito. Go to fantasticnegrito.com, buy some music, pick up some merch, buy some more music. You know how it works. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. BombshellRadio.com will tell you all you need to know about our radio station. You can follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor or on Instagram at Ember's Podcast or just email me editor at stereoembersmagazine.com. I will tell you, I have a new book coming out May 1st, The Adventure Teen All-Stars. I'll be talking about that incessantly uh, in the uh, next couple weeks. So brace yourself for some shameless self-promotion. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate and review, and tell all your friends. We certainly appreciate you doing all that button pushing. Let's close the show with a longer listen to Drifting Away from Grandfather Courage, the new album by Fantastic Negrito. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. Drifting away, couldn't find a place to stay, walking in the footsteps of it all. Pablo Avenue Things are just the same